Hello, I'm Michael Scharf. I'm the Dean at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. I was formerly Attorney Advisor for United Nations Affairs at the U.S. Department of State, and I'm the author of 18 books. One of those books is the subject of this video lecture. This is my recent book from Cambridge University Press, and it is called, I'm going to look at it, Customary International Law in Times of Fundamental Change, Recognizing Groschen Moments. The concept is about accelerated formation of customary international law, and that's what I'll be talking with you about today. Customary international law, as we all know, has two elements, widespread state practice and a sense of legal obligation, known as opinio juris. Most often, historians, governments, books will say that customary international law takes many, many years to grow and harden. And in fact, they use the metaphor of crystallization, which, as we know in the world of geology, can take a millennium. Well, customary international law might not take that long, but the concept was that it takes a very long time. But then the International Court of Justice in the 1969 North Sea Continental Shelf case opined that sometimes customary international law can happen quite frequently, that it might not require many years. And so what my book aims to look at are what are the elements, what is the background and the context that can create rapid formation of customary international law. And about the time I was writing the book, I gave a lecture in Japan at the, and I was in Kyoto, where they have the Kiyosora company. And one of the things that that giant company does is it makes uh, gemstones that are artificial. And instead of taking thousands of years for these things to be created, they're actually created within about a year or two through intense heat and pressure. And it occurred to me that that is a, the metaphor for what happens when customary international law sometimes grows and ripens or crystallizes quite rapidly. So the next step in my journey was I happened to be at The Hague, and I was meeting with an old friend who had been elevated to the International Court of Justice, Chris Greenwood. And we had a lunch on my birthday, and I told him that I was looking into this issue. And he said, I know lots of examples where there has been rapid formation of customary international law. And I think if you look into them, there are sort of some common denominators that will help you write your book. So together we came up with six case studies, which I'll discuss with you today. Four of them, I think, are non-controversial. Two of them are issues that are still evolving, and maybe the answer is not yet apparent. But it's definitely worth us exploring in this video and podcast. So before I do that, we had to come up with a name for this accelerated formation of customary international law concept. And what some authors and scholars were calling it was international uh, constitutional law moments. And that I didn't think was the right name for this, because a constitutional moment makes sense when you're talking about a domestic change in a constitution, or even if you have an international treaty that's like a constitution. But what we're talking about here is customary international law that transcends the bounds of treaties. So we needed another name. The one that we came up with was a Groschen moment. And of course, this harkens back to the great legal scholar, diplomat, lawyer, and government official from the 17th century in the Netherlands, Hugo Grotius.
Now, why would we name it after Hugo Grotius? He was a, a great man, and, and he did great things for international law. But the greatest thing he did was he wrote his masterpiece, the, the book on the law of war and peace. And what it turned out to be was a blueprint for a new world order that was codified in the Peace of Westphalia. And most people who look back at history will say that the Peace of Westphalia was the moment when the modern state system and all of the, the traditional benchmarks for international law were framed. And that really came out of his writings and the time period, which was the end of the 80 years war. It was a horrible time in Europe. And it was a time when the world was ready to move from a world where you had empires and you had the um, Roman church governing many countries to a rule of law that was governed by independent states like we see today. So that was a Grotian moment. Couldn't we call these other moments where international law happens very quickly for some of the same reasons, Grotian moments? And so that's the label we gave it. And I'm gratified to see that in the years since my book has come out, there has been thousands of citations to this concept. So the term has, has caught on and it is a, a good term to use. But you could use other terms as well. You could call them international tipping points. Um, you could, as some do, call them international constitutional moments. Whatever you call them, the concept is the same. And that is sometimes customary international law can happen very quickly. So let's look at these six case studies and, and see what the common ingredients are and what lessons we can learn from exploring them. The first was the Nuremberg trial. So before Nuremberg in 1945 and 46, the rule of law was that what a country did to its own citizens was its own business. After Nuremberg, you have the advent of human rights law, international criminal law. Now, this might seem very general, but sometimes you need to know when a rule of customary international law was created. And this happened to me when I was on a sabbatical and I was working as special assistant to Robert Petit, who was the chief prosecutor of the Cambodia Genocide Tribunal, the EEEC. The issue that he asked me to write the prosecution brief on was whether something called joint criminal enterprise liability could be used at the Cambodia Tribunal. Now, joint criminal enterprise liability is a form of liability that's very pro-prosecution. It says that if someone joins a criminal enterprise, whatever anybody else does that's part of that enterprise, if it's reasonably foreseeable, then the perpetrator can be responsible for all the other acts, even if it wasn't part of their agreed-upon plan. And this kind of concept is not generally recognized in the domestic countries' laws in, throughout the world. There are some countries, especially the United States and the United Kingdom, and some common law countries, but most of the countries of the world didn't have this. The Yugoslavia Tribunal in 1995 adopted joint criminal enterprise liability. And after that, the Rwanda Tribunal, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Lebanon Tribunal, and many other tribunals adopted that. And so going forward, it is part of customary international law. But the trick for the Cambodia Tribunal was that the acts that we were trying to prosecute happened in the 1970s, way before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was created and had made its famous precedential decision. So the question was, there was only one precedent that could possibly allow us to argue that it was a new concept that had 
hardened into customer international law, and that would have been Nuremberg. Well, the problem with that is Nuremberg was one trial. It lasted one year. And afterwards, the UN General Assembly did adopt a resolution endorsing the principles of that judgment. But there wasn't a lot of time or a lot of state practice behind it. So we argued in the brief that this was a Groschen moment. And we used that word, first time ever, that you would see that in an international brief. And the Cambodia Tribunal ended up deciding that um, joint criminal enterprise, and there's there several different kinds of JCE or joint criminal enterprise, but the, the basic part was formed from customer international law that arose out of Nuremberg. And there's still a debate about whether the most extended version was formed at Nuremberg. And the debate is not about whether Nuremberg crystallized customer international law, but rather whether Nuremberg actually applied this extended form of joint criminal enterprise liability. So think that we can see that Nuremberg really was a one-year, one-case situation where you had 24 countries involved um, the four main powers and another several that joined in on the Nuremberg Charter, but it did not have the traditional ingredients of widespread state practice and a long period of time in opinio juris. It was something that happened very fast, but the ingredients behind it was you had a world war that had ended. You had the first time ever that you had this extended genocide of over 6 million people. And there was a real need to have a legal framework and a doctrine to allow them to prosecute. And out of that came one of the first modern Groschen moments. So the next one we looked at was just a year later, and that was the advent of the continental shelf. Same kind of ingredients. At the end of World War II, there was a great need for oil, and the oil resources were out on the continental shelf. In this case, technology had started to change. And for the first time, it was possible to have oil wells out beyond 12 nautical miles that used to not be part of a country's economic sovereignty. So President Truman of the United States unilaterally did a proclamation in 1946. And it was called the Truman Proclamation. And it said that the United States economic sovereignty extended beyond 12 nautical miles all the way out to 200 nautical miles where the continental shelf would allow the United States to drill for oil. And instead of countries saying, hey, we object, that's, that's an extension of sovereignty that we've never seen before, the other countries of the world said, this is a great idea, and nobody objected. And within a couple of years, all the countries in the world that had coasts were claiming continental shelves, and the other countries in the world that didn't have coasts were not complaining about it, and this became another Groschen moment. In fact, the International Court of Justice, a couple of years later, um, said that that was the time period when very quickly the continental shelf concept grew. And it was something that happened outside of what you traditionally would think of. It didn't take a millennia, it didn't take 100 years, it didn't take 20 years, it happened very quickly. So again, this was after World War II, you had a technological change, you had a need for quick action, and it wasn't something that a treaty regime would have been able to respond to quickly enough. And so the world just acquiesced to a new concept, and it was a Groschen moment. So the third one is outer space law. This was started in 1957 when 
the Soviet Union launched the first satellite in orbit, Sputnik. And as that little satellite went around the world going beep, 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 it created a need for a new legal regime. So very shortly afterwards, the United States and the Soviet Union sent dozens of rockets and satellites and other exploring, space exploring vehicles throughout not just our immediate um, orbit, but also to the other planets. And the question was, what would the rule of law be when a country launched a space vehicle and the vehicle would go up toward outer space, but it would go above other countries' airspace? And one of the ways you could look at it is, um, you could look at it as like the law of the sea. You could say, look, if you, and, and the law of land, if you go over our territory, you have to get our permission. And if you're going to put a satellite that is in geosynchronous orbit permanently above our territory at 22,000 miles up, you need our permission and you need to pay us a license. And if one of your manned space vehicles crashes, the astronaut could be treated as a spy who has landed on your territory, just like the Soviets treated Gary Power, who was on a U-2 airplane during the Cold War, and he had to bail out over the Soviet Union. But that's not at all the rules that were created for spaceflight. Instead, the United States, the Soviet Union, and other countries who knew that in the future they would want to take advantage of spaceflight came together at the UN, and they passed the 1963 UN Declaration on the Principles of Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And that declaration actually created customary international law. That, together with the dozens of space um, shots that had taken place in just a couple of years by just those two countries. But afterwards, when the 1967 Outer Space Treaty was codified and, and finalized, everybody recognized that it was just codifying customary international law that came out of that General Assembly resolution. And in fact, Countries who have not ratified that treaty are still bound by the 1963 resolution. Now, what does the resolution say? It says things like, if you are sending a satellite up for peaceful uses, you don't need the permission of the countries who you go over. If you have a satellite in geosynchronous orbit, you don't have to pay a license. If one of your astronauts crashes down on a different country, he has to be treated as an ambassador of mankind or humankind, not as a spy and various other things. So in this case, the technological change of spaceflight that came so suddenly sowed the ingredients for rapid formation of customary international law. Now, the fourth example that's non-controversial is the 1995 appeals chamber decision of the Yugoslavia Tribunal. This is in the Tadic case, and what the court said was that there could be individual international criminal responsibility in internal armed conflicts. Now today that sounds absolutely not at issue at all, but what you have to remember is when they were drafting the statute of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is the expert at international humanitarian law, opined in a report to the UN that there could not be, under current customary international law, responsibility in internal armed conflict. And they suggested, in other countries as well, that the Yugoslavia conflict be deemed in its statute as an international armed conflict to make sure that everything could be 
tried by this court. Well, the court rejected that approach. They said, you know, parts of this are internal, parts of it are international, and we don't have to decide because we believe that customary international law now recognizes individual criminal responsibility even in internal armed conflict. Now, that decision might have been controversial. It might not have been immediately embraced, but for the fact that a year later, there was genocide in Rwanda. And the Security Council created a new statute for the Rwanda Tribunal, and they used that precedent to say that there could be internal armed conflict, internal civil war responsibility for these kinds of atrocities. And then soon all the other tribunals, including the International Criminal Court Statute, had the same language, and it proliferated quickly so that all of the armed manuals and the statutes in the many countries around the world now recognize that there can be individual criminal responsibility for internal armed conflict atrocities. And so, again, this was something that happened very quickly. What were the ingredients? Genocide returned to Europe for the first time since World War II. Another ingredient was that the Cold War had just ended. The Soviet Union had collapsed. It was replaced by Russia. And it was a time period when Russia was being extremely cooperative in the United Nations. In fact, during that two-year period when this uh, statute was adopted, there were more Security Council resolutions passed in the UN than there had been in the past 50 years before that. It was a really interesting moment for the international community. And it's a moment that has passed. The, the state of Security Council resolutions have slowed down again with the paralysis of a threatened veto from time to time. All right, so those are the four easy Groschen moments. Now let's look at two of the more interesting cutting edge ones. The first one is, can there be the right to use self-defense against non-state actors operating in a country that you're not at war with? Now, this issue grew out of the 9-11 attacks on the United States and the fact that the Bush administration and Obama administration began to use predator drones with Hellfire missiles to shoot at terrorist targets in many countries around the world, in the Middle East, that the United States was not at war with. And the U.S. had a theory that if the country was unable or unwilling to control the non-state actors, that that was legal grounds for this action under Article 51, Self-Defense of the UN Charter. The problem is that most of the other countries in the world didn't accept this rationale. And in fact, the International Court of Justice had two opinions in two cases that seemed quite contrary to it. The first was the Nicaragua case, and in that case, the International Court of Justice said, if you want to attack non-state actors operating in a, a country that you're not at war with, you have to show that the country itself is in effective control of the non-state actors. And that was a 1986 case, but it was repeated again after 9-11 in the Congo case. And so the International Court of Justice has been pretty consistent, saying you can't use Article 51 to attack non-state actors. Now, in the Congo case, there were three dissents by some of the judges who said, look, the world has changed and the ICJ should change its doctrine accordingly. But that didn't happen right away. Now, Let's fast forward a little bit. ISIS starts to come about. ISIS is the remnants of the Iraqi army together with other revolutionaries from the area that took advantage of the vacuum 
that was created in both Iraq and Syria to become a very strong and big terrorist organization. Now, ISIS became so big and strong that they attacked the second and third biggest cities in Iraq, Tikrit and Mosul, and took them over. And when they did so, they took all of the money from the banks, and a lot of that money was there from the international community to help um, rebuild Iraq. It was financial aid for the citizens of Iraq, and they took it. They took all of the armaments from the Iraqi army, which at that time was not very well equipped and, and actually sort of ran away and didn't fight ISIS when this occurred. And so they ended up with tanks and anti-aircraft guns and machine guns and military outfits. Well, then with all of that money and all of that munitions, they started attacking oil fields in Syria. And they took over a number of oil fields and refineries, and they started pumping oil, and they became the first terrorist organization that was billionaires and had a source of income. And they took over, at that point, about a third of the territory of Syria and Iraq. And they were going to grow, and it was a scary moment for the international community, because this is an organization that was using heinous kinds of acts to meet their goals. And, and we're talking about everything that the UN has documented from mass rape, mass killing, burning people alive. This is a scary, scary and bad organization. But when the United States started to attack ISIS targets in Syria without Syria's permission, there were protests from Russia, from Syria, from other countries around the world. They said, you can't just start attacking ISIS targets and, and they weren't just using the Predator drones anymore. Now they were using these giant cruise missiles. And they used so many of them. They actually ran out at one time. There was a pause because they had to quickly get more. We're talking about thousands of attacks against ISIS in Syria. So at that time, the world still had not accepted that a country could attack non-state actors in the territory of a country if, if there wasn't a link between that government and what the non-state actors were doing. And in this case, Syria was not loving ISIS. ISIS was as much a threat to Syria as it was to anybody. Um, and Syria actually asked for support and help to combat ISIS, but the United States was not enamored with the Assad regime, so it wasn't going to work with Assad in its attacks against ISIS. All right, so that's where the world was until two e events occurred. The first was the October 31st, 2015, ISIS bombing of a Russian airliner. And suddenly Russia realized that ISIS was going to be a problem for Russia and it needed to be able to help the United States suppress ISIS. But that wasn't enough. A couple of weeks later, on November 13th, 2015, ISIS then had its famous bombing of the Paris Stadium and the concert halls. And there, 130 people died from many countries. And it wasn't confined to the area of Syria or Iraq. This occurred right in the heart of Europe. And now the world realized ISIS was going to be a problem for everybody. So then on November 20th, just a week after that, the UN Security Council got together and they unanimously passed Resolution 2249. Now, many people who have not looked closely at this resolution think that this was a Chapter 7 authorization to use force against ISIS. That is not what this resolution is. This is a resolution that confirms that countries can use self-defense against ISIS.
And what that resolution did was it capped a Groshen moment. Something that the United States had been arguing for not nearly a decade was suddenly accepted by the entire international community as the law. Now, we don't really know all the contours of that Groshen moment. For example, does it mean that countries can attack non-state actors around the world, or is it only ISIS? ISIS actually operates in about 18 other countries. So can you attack ISIS in those 18 countries, or is it only ISIS in Syria. So the contours of this Groshen moment of what this Security Council resolution means needs to be thought out and we'll see through precedent what it actually means. And that's part of what happens with Groshen moments. You don't know exactly what they fully entail at the moment that they have crystallized and it takes a little bit of time for history to explore the contours. Well, Syria was also a melting pot um, for other potential Groshen moments. And the other one has to do with the concept of humanitarian intervention. When I'm thinking back to my lunch with Chris Greenwood, we talked about NATO's intervention in 1999 as a Groshen moment, creating the right of humanitarian intervention. And when I wrote the book, I ended up concluding that it had not yet hardened into a Groshen moment. But events in Syria might be changing that. So let's go and explore that one. Starting out with 1999. You all remember probably back to that time, um, Slobodan Milosevic was president of Serbia, the former Yugoslavia, um, in the province of Kosovo, where there were mostly Muslim Kosovars. He was committing ethnic cleansing, and the UN Security Council was condemning that. About 500,000 Kosovar Albanians went up to the mountains, and it was the fall and winter was coming, and if things didn't change, probably most of them would freeze to death and die. So we're looking at a potential genocide of 500,000 people. The United States, the United Kingdom, and NATO were not able to get a Security Council resolution. At the time, Russia was opposing that. So they couldn't get authorization from the Security Council. They couldn't argue that it was self-defense under Article 51 because there was no threat to anybody else but those Kosovar Albanians. But nonetheless, by unanimous consent, NATO decided to start an 86-day bombing campaign against Serbia until Slobodan Milosevic recanted and allowed the UN to come in ultimately and govern the Kosovo province. Now, at the time, there wasn't a lot of complaints. You know, Serbia complained, Russia complained, but most of the countries in the world said, look, this is the right thing to do. But the Secretary General Kofi Annan said this was a case of an action that was illegal under the UN Charter, but justified and legitimate. Well, that was very puzzling to international lawyers. If something's illegal, how can it be legitimate? And so a group of Lawyers and experts from many countries and NGOs got together and they created something that is now called the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. It even has a bumper sticker name, R2P. So R2P basically says that in a case where the Security Council is paralyzed and you have atrocity crimes of a grave nature and there is no other way to get authority, that countries are allowed to go in and save the people. And there are four elements that the report 
uh, said were important about this. So the first was just cause. You couldn't do it for any cause. It really had to be a genocide or massive crimes against humanity, something that was of a great scale. Second, you had to have right intention. It couldn't be for a land grab. You couldn't be going in to try to switch the government, overthrow a government that you didn't like. You had to be going in just to save the people's lives. Third, it had to be last resort, including the Security Council really had to be paralyzed. Everything else had to be tried. There had to be necessity of acting right of way to save people. And then finally, you had to act with proportionate force. That means that you couldn't attack all over the place. You had to really be narrowly defined and, and try to just use that amount of force necessarily to save the lives. And the theory was, if that happened, then you could have a right of humanitarian intervention. Well, this is just a group of experts. This is not governments that are deciding this. So the next thing is that that went to the 2005 World Summit, which endorsed the concept, but it did not endorse it fully. It did not include unilateral humanitarian intervention. And then the Security Council a year later in 2006 also endorsed the concept. But again, they did it more narrowly. The Security Council seemed to be saying, there is a right of humanitarian intervention. These are the ingredients, but you always need Security Council authorization. So that kind of nipped this growing customary international law in the bud. And for a while, it didn't look like the R2P doctrine was going to go anywhere. In fact, there were a couple of invasions of Georgia and the Ukraine that were so controversial, and they were alleged to be under this new doctrine that it seemed to be setting it back. Now, what are the advantages of having a concept like Groschen Moment? Why, why do we need a label? What, why do we even have to think about this? I think there are, are four different things that having this concept and recognize it can be helpful to the international community. The first is that it allows people to, and, and people being jurists and government officials and UN officials to recognize that sometimes customary international law can rapidly be created and thereby it will imbue these new rules with more authority and legitimacy. People won't be able to just say, no, that can't be custom because it didn't take 30 years. Uh, the second is that sometimes it will counsel governments to take the path of a general assembly or security council resolution and you know, think about it. Nuremberg had a General Assembly resolution. The attacks uh, against ISIS had a Security Council resolution, even though it was non-binding and it was just a confirmation of self-defense. Resolutions can help top off the rapid formation of customary international law. Um, it can also strengthen the case for litigants who are arguing in a court case that a rule they are arguing over is now customary international law. Ironically, this. Um, book and, and an article I wrote based on this has become one of the most downloaded articles in international law because I think the Jessup Moot Court students who always have to argue every year in their Moot Court about new customer international law are recognizing the value of this concept in making those arguments. And then finally, it can furnish the international courts with the confidence to recognize new rules of customary international law in appropriate cases, despite what otherwise looks like a dearth of state practice and time. But I need to caution you that we all need to approach the Groschen Moment concept with caution.
And that is because in times of international flux, it may be easy to identify a turning point that is not really there. And so just as we talked about those, those two final, more controversial Groshen moments, especially the last one about humanitarian intervention, I think we have to be careful about jumping too quickly to think that something is new customary international law. Sometimes it takes a couple of years of hindsight to see what the contours are and what's really happened. And I do want to also stress that we're not talking about instant custom. There, there was for a while a number of scholars that said that you could have customary international law that's created just from General Assembly resolutions. I don't believe that is the case, and I think that the international community is not ready to accept that. That's not what this is. This is rapid formation of custom, but it does require an underlying um, number of cases of um, state action of uh, ideas and, and um, examples of pineo juris so that you can see that something is happening and it's not just instant. Now, what might be the next case study to look at? I would suggest that global warming and the increasing levels of the sea are going to create the kind of ecological stress that is a new situation that is going to have to be rapidly approached and that the treaty method might not be equipped to do that. And that we will see state action, we will see general assembly resolutions and people will start, and countries will start saying that's customary international law, even though it's going to happen quite frequently, quite quickly. So let's keep our eye on that. And with that, I will sign off on this lecture. I hope this has been useful and insightful and provocative and that you will be able to use this concept in your practice and in your scholarship. Thank you very much.